Packers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Yo, what is happening, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. I'm your host, founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, Brad Wilson, and today I'm going to be speaking with one of the most influential people to ever work behind the scenes in the poker industry, Matt Savage. Matt is the executive tour director for the World Poker Tour and holds the record for officiating over the most episodes of televised poker with more than 400 under his belt. He's overseen some of the biggest tournaments and moments in the history of poker, including the WSOP from 2002 to 2004 and too many World Poker Tour events to count. He also serves as tournament director for several well-known casinos and card rooms, including mild stopping grounds, the Commerce Casino, the Bay 101, and Thunder Valley. He has worked with many television networks, including Fox News, FSN, Travel Channel, NBC, and ESPN. He's also the co-founder of the Tournament Directors Association, was an inaugural inductee into the Poker Room Managers Hall of Fame in 2003, and has been nominated five times for the Poker Hall of Fame. Matt has a singularly unique perspective on the game, with direct access to players and behind-the-scenes events that even journalists don't normally get to see. During our conversation, you'll hear stories about Chip Reese, Doyle Brunson, running the WSOP in the old days, which includes running out of chips and not having enough space to accommodate an unexpectedly massive field, and even how Matt almost accidentally squashed the moneymaker boom before it ever began. He'll also explain why he very much regrets introducing the concept of re-entries to tournament poker. Matt is a true poker innovator, pioneer, and genuine asset to this game we all hold so near and dear to our hearts. It isn't hyperbole when I say that wherever poker tournaments are spread worldwide, if you look close enough, you'll be able to spot Matt's fingerprints on the structure and design. So without any further ado, I bring to you one of the most influential human beings in the history of poker. This is Matt Savage on Chasing Poker Greatness. Good morning, my man, Mr. Savage. How are we doing? I'm doing great. Better. I should say better. Not great, better. <laughs> better than a few days ago, which is Correct. very good news for everybody in the poker world. For our interview, I've decided to start in a year that's pretty big for poker. 2003, when one fellow from Nashville takes down the main. Um, and, and you were there. Could you tell me about your personal experience at that WSOP? You're talking about the Hall of Famer, Chris Moneymaker? I, I am. <laughs> I am. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird year. You know, it was one of those years. At that time, the World Series of Poker was kind of in flux. People really didn't know what was going to happen with it because it was the owners, you know, didn't really take very good care of their property, their casino. Uh, Vinian's Horseshoe. And, you know, from year to year, it could have been over. Nobody knew at that time 
if the World Series is going to be a part of it. And I started a year earlier in 2001. Uh, I started there at the World Series of Poker, or 2002, excuse me. 2002, I was hired to work the World Series of Poker. And uh, that year, we really didn't even know if that was going to happen because the year prior to that, the floor people didn't get paid. The dealers uh, were in an uproar because they felt like they were had money held from them. So, you know, it was one of those times in poker that, you know, yeah, the World Series was a big deal, but it wasn't anything like it was today. But, you know, what we had that year was we had the internet uh, boom starting. So, you know, people were coming in and getting registered to the tournament off of the internet, kind of like Chris Moneymaker. So uh, it was an interesting time. You know, we didn't know how many players we were going to have if we were going to go up year over year uh, from the year pri- uh, previous. Um, and then when we got the 839, it was just a huge number. You know, people didn't know that uh, we were going to go up that much. But the internet uh, companies that came in and, and put these players in, like Moneymaker, uh, really added a lot to the tournament. And that's interesting because reading your bio, you see that, you know, you start the Tournament Directors Association. And then it's like the next year you start running the WSOP. And in my mind, I think wow, like that's, that's like prestigious. That's like a, a massive, massive promotion, a massive thing. But in retrospect, thinking like, oh, they didn't even know, like it was going to run, right? Like, yeah. In 2001 is when they started taking the, uh, the 3% or the $600 or $600 for the buy-in. And they, at that time, didn't know how they were going to break it up for the floor staff, for the dealers, or for an entry fee. So at that time, it was kind of uh, an interesting thing. But the floor people didn't end up getting paid. Wow. So when I started the Tournament Directors Association in 2001, it was actually the first time ever I had gone into the World Series of Poker, ever. So I'd walked in there to try and get the tournament directors at the World Series behind my initiative to start the Tournament Directors Association and standardize rules. And they kind of looked at me and laughed at me and thought it was you know something that had been tried before and was never going to work. So... Basically, because I started the Tournament Directors Association in 2001, that's why I was invited by Tom McAvoy, another Hall of Famer, to, uh, to run the World Series of Poker. And people that were close to me, you know, like I was pretty close to Linda Johnson at the time. Uh, she had helped me start the TDA. She said, you know, don't do it. They're not going to pay you. It's probably a bad move uh, for your career and all of that. But I thought at the time that, hey, I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter if they pay me or not. It's a good career move for me, and it, it turned out, you know, being such. How hard was it to get the floor involved at the WSOP, especially if they didn't get paid the year before? It doesn't seem like there would be many people that are just volunteering to be involved. Yeah, I mean, I was new to the term, to the, the World Series. Uh, it was kind of a, a risk for me to take the job. But at the same time, you know, people that were year the year prior, you know, I had to make certain kind of like promises to them hey, I'm not going to let this happen to you. I want to make sure you guys get paid correctly. Uh, it was basically the, the main TDs that didn't get paid. The floor staff did get paid and got paid pretty well. So they were okay with it, you know. And back then, it was a different world. You know, you used to make tips on the side. It was like, not like it is today. You know, nobody basically tips anymore because uh, there's a percentage withheld. So that was kind of new uh, back then. But there was a lot more of a tipping culture in poker. Uh, than there was today. So the, everybody made pretty good money back then. So that wasn't as much of an issue. That's interesting. So tournament directors make less now because of the, the mandatory tipping? Is that the... 
Um, I wouldn't say they make less, but I would probably say it's about the same. And, you know, with inflation, yeah. about the same isn't as good. And I do believe that there was more uh, more tipping going on back then. So it might have been better back then. But, you know, a lot of the players these days, uh, and rightfully so, you know, probably don't tip because they feel like it's already being withheld. So I understand that side of it as well. Um, when there's money withheld, I never expect an additional tip or anything like that. It's always appreciated and nice, but uh, it's come to be not expected anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, it's just interesting, like uh, adding the mandatory and then the mandatory being about the same as it was before. Um, there, there, I think there's a, always been a lot of generous folks in the poker community, especially when it comes to taking care of people. Um, and that says a lot about the people that played pre-Moneymaker Boom, just about how they thought about things. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. and it's, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. I I talk to a lot of people now that I've still come to me for questions and answers and people that are new into the industry and uh, they really miss the boat. It was, it was a lot different back then. It was, it was a good time, you know, during the boom and before uh, it was a totally different industry. That's for sure. And you're one man that has lived through both worlds. Let's, let's go to that, that tournament again, the WSOP. You called the, the final table, correct? Yes. Yeah. I called the final table in 2002, three and four. And what were your thoughts? Did it feel like a, a, a normal year at the WSOP? Did you have any expectation, you know, when Moneymaker took it down, that it would have this giant ripple effect throughout poker? Well, it had a totally different feeling to me, to be honest, because it was the first year that 4 for 1 Productions had come in uh, to, to film, to tape the World Series of Poker. So they were really taking it serious. They basically came in, Matt Morantz, uh, Dave Schwartz, they came in and didn't know a lot about poker, didn't know a lot about the industry, but they worked their asses off to make sure that they did. And uh, they came up to me and they had a list of pictures and slang and, and a lot of different things that, you know, that I had already known because I'd been in it and been at the World Series in 2001 or 2002. But they asked all of these questions to try and get up to speed as soon as possible. And they really focused on the stories uh, more than anything and on the players. And uh, one of the people that was working on the production team had noticed the name Moneymaker early in the week and said, this is my guy. This is the guy that's going to win the tournament. (laughs) Kind of (laughs) legend at this time. But yeah, he ended up making the final table. So calling that final table, it did have a totally different feel to me. I think that the production value had gone up way higher from the year before. Um, You know, Norman and uh, Lon were there first time. Uh, so I believe that that had a, t- a totally different feel. And calling that final table, you know, it was a little more nerve-wracking, you know, and it was a little more interesting. And, it, you know, the one that was called the bluff of the century, if you go back and watch it on YouTube, you'll see that I did not hear Moneymaker say raise. I thought he had said call. So he looks at me on that video and says, I said raise, I said raise. So <laughs> in reality... I could have changed, you know, history, right? <laughs> yeah. That block may have never got through had Sammy Harfarhad picked up on the fact that he changed his whole his whole feeling and his whole, uh, you know, the way he talked to me about the raise. If that raise or th- that bluff had not gone through, who knows if we have a, a completely different story or poker thing <laughs> forever. Well, it's it's a good thing we don't live in that alternate universe. Yeah, um, that's correct. Where you killed poker forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, so do you know why they decided that year to bring in the production crew and up the production value, especially if they weren't familiar with poker? How did that even happen? No, I'm not really sure. I, I kind of never really got that story about why they brought them in, but I think it was ESPN. ESPN uh, wanted to cover it? Yeah, that wanted to cover it better. And, uh, you know, it was kind of, again, perfect storm that they came in and put the extra money into it that year and hired 441 to do that uh, because I don't think, again, we'd be there today where we are. And I think a lot, a lot of that had to do with the fact that the World Poker Tour uh, had already started and, you know, they saw some value in, in the content that they held with the World Series of Poker. And I want to go back and, and say that it's like a producer to see money, the name moneymaker and be like, oh, this is my guy. He's going to win. Like <laughs> such yeah, a random, exactly. such a random thing. Like this is obviously what he wants, the amateur yeah. name moneymaker. But for it to actually happen is just, I mean, it's still incredible, the, the, right. the whole story. So you, you mentioned the WPT. And then after, you know, there's the moneymaker effect and then we start booming Actually, before we get into the WPT, you mentioned in 2004 in the main event that uh, (laughs) a bad thing happened. Could you tell me that story? Oh, in 2004, yeah. So what had happened in 2004 was that we didn't – well, I anticipated. It was actually the first tournament where we started using a day 1A and 1B. And now, like this is like almost every tournament (laughs) that has a big guarantee has a 1A, 1B, 1C, you know, all the way to 1Z – it seems like in some of these events. So I knew that we were going to be up year over year because we had the online influence and all the people coming back. So I split up the field and it still wasn't enough. You know, we had not enough tables. We were strewn from end to end of the casino. Uh, We almost got shut down because there was too many tables. We had tables all the way from one end of the casino to the other, all the way to Fremont street. We had put up glass doors on Fremont street that the oh fire God. department came down and said, you need to move these tables right now. So we ended up, you know, it'd be blasphemy these days, but instead of shutting people out, which they did another year at the World Series Poker, we got everybody in. Uh, we had 10-handed tables. And when we had to, to break those tables for the fire codes, we ended up having some 11-handed tables. So, you know, <laughs> poker players today would just absolutely uh, go crazy with the Twitter, uh, you know, the Twitter verse the way it is. They would have gone crazy with it. But they would... Um, we had some 11 handed tables at the time. So it was kind of a crazy event when we got down at the end of day one, we knew we were going to run out of chips or the end of day two, we knew we were going to run out of chips. So we actually had to open up some players bags and change them with higher denomination chips. And uh, one person's bag I remember specifically was Phil Homo. He had just over 30,000 after day one, we had to open up his bag and he had a bag full of chips and put in three 10 K chips. And $100 chips, just so we had enough chips to start the next day. Wow. That's, uh, that's a problem that you wouldn't think about happening nowadays. Right. Running yeah. out of chips. Yeah. And I actually didn't know that they shut people out of the WSOP one year. Was it the main event that people yeah, got shut out? Yeah, they shut people out. I believe it was in 2005. Is that because the Jamie they, Gold year? What's 2005? Uh, yeah, I believe that was the Jamie Gold year, yes. That was the first year it was at the Rio. Yeah. So they shut people out of the, the main event. Wow. I, I actually didn't know that. That's another thing that would just blow up everywhere, yes. um, shutting people out of the main. Right. So after 2004, you, you stopped running the WSOP. 
why did you stop running the WSOP? Um, and then how did you transition to the WPT? Well, part of it was that it was going to have to be an exclusive deal. I would have had to stay on board and, and run just the WSOP and be a Harris employee. And so at the time, I had uh, taken some jobs with Fox Sports Net. And that's how I ended up running, you know, so many different shows uh, that came out during that time with a lot of the internet companies and it ended up being so I wasn't exclusive to Harris. I was able to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, it was also the same time that they were going to have the takeover from Harris and, and Harris was going to move the event because it, uh, you know, to be fair, it had outgrown Binion's Horseshoe. Uh, so they were going to move the event uh, to the Rio or wherever they were going to move it at the time. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where uh, a guy I'd worked with named Howard Greenbaum said, you know, I always have you in my back pocket if, you're, if you are going to come back or want to come back. But at the same time, I was doing so many different other things and working for so many different casinos. It wasn't, didn't make financial sense for me to, to be uh, full-time with the Harrow's and World Series program. Yeah, it's like the WSOP used to only last, you know, a month or, or right. whatever. So what do you do the other 11 months? I mean, now they have like the circuit and they have WSOP Europe and it's probably more like a full-time gig. I would think running, running the show at the WSOP nowadays. Definitely is a full-time gig. And Jack Eiffel does a great job of, of handling all the logistics of it. You know, he doesn't you know have time to be on the floor making rulings, uh, you know, at the, at the tables, but he's doing such a bigger job. And, you know, I always said that in the past, before I started the world series of poker, there was a tournament coordinator and a tournament director. The tournament coordinator's job was actually a bigger job, a bigger title, uh, had more responsibility. And I think that's the job he's doing today. He's actually not a tournament director, in my opinion. So you, you get into all these other things with Fox Sportsnet and all the different shows um, and a WPT. What are some, some memories of that time that you have running those shows? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, an amazing time because, you know, we were traveling. It was a, the world poker tour i'd gone down to costa rica and uh, there was you know stories going on down there with the, the owner you know taking off with a bunch of money and stuff like this did that really happen yeah it did i mean he basically got people the players that came down there and locals to invest in a, a company you know basically where they you know would say we guarantee you 10 percent a month if you invest this money and ended up running off with some of the money but uh you know, oh my the, God! The World Poker Tour was never involved with that, or luckily, and didn't have anything to do with it. But he had taken, you know, the confidence of the players that come down there and had them do that, and they did make good money for a little while until it all blew up, right? But, yeah, it's uh, like a Ponzi scheme, right? Yeah, it was definitely a Ponzi scheme. But it, uh, you know, it uh, turned out that you know the event down there was great. But um, you know, I was just working for casinos back then. I wasn't actually working for the World Poker Tour like I do today. So it was. It was fun traveling and being a part of, of following the World Poker Tour. And, you know, back in those days, we used to do that. I used to go to the World Poker Tour final tables because it was such a happening. You know, I would be, you know, sweating the final tables, talking to those people. And it kind of got me inroads into working in other places like the Commerce Casino, which I still work today. And they won one, which I still work today, and Thunder Valley and Seminole Hard Rock and all of those things. So all of the people that I work with today, you know, basically came from the World Poker Tour, not the World Series of Poker. Yeah. And, and those events, just watching even on TV, I mean, I was very early in my career, probably, God, 22, 23 years old. Like it was just can't miss watching the WPT final tables. And, and I just I loved consuming it. When did you start 
working for the WPT full time? When did that full happen? Full time, it started around uh, 2012. I was hired to be the executive tour director. So, um, you know, it's a job I still hold today. I'm the kind of liaison between players and the properties and the liaison between the WPT and the property and the players in the WPT. So I kind of have a multifaceted job. I and mean, we have not only the World Poker Tour main tour, but we have the World Poker Tour WPT Deep Stacks and uh, you know other national events that we still run in Europe and all over the world. So it's been a really a, a full-time uh, job uh, that keeps me busy all the time. But yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, the people that I work with, the CEO, Adam Pliska, he really treats us like a family. You know, my boss, Angelica Hale, always treats me, you know, like it's, it's more than just a job for them. It's more like a family and you know, they we all look out for each other and it's, it's been great. I've really enjoyed my time with the World Poker Tour and glad that it's continuing. It's amazing to be able to work for people that treat you like family. Um, yes, you know, it's making money is a good thing, but fulfillment and happiness matter just as much. Um, for sure. In your travels, what's your favorite stop? As far as just not even the playing, but just being in a specific location, um, it's tough for me to say. Obviously, I have deep ties to commerce. You know, uh, I think it's the last bastion of of no reentry on the World Poker Tour. So it's a ten thousand dollar event. I really believe you know them being a charter member, one of the first on the World Poker Tour, is a big deal. So you know, I I love that event. Uh, of course, when the, the shooting star from the Bay 101 was on the World Poker Tour, that was one of my favorite events as well. Right now, Seminole Hard Rock, to me, is you know just a massive upgrade of of the property and the things that they're doing there is just huge for poker. So, you know, it's tough for me to, to nail it down to just one. But, you know, we just have so many great stops that have been on the tour for so long, the Borgata, uh, you know, and the bike and all of these places that have really – founded the World Poker Tour and been there since the beginning, I think are a big part of why the World Poker Tour is still successful today. And I love commerce. I have lived at commerce at one point in my life. <laughs> uh, basically lived in the uh, the hotel there playing cards for 60 hours a week in their cash games. It's it's one of my favorite places to be. You mentioned the, the re-entries and you had a hand in this, right? Like you had a hand. Yeah, in, in I basically this. started reentry, which it was not created to be what people think now is just a rake gen- generating thing. It was not created that way at all. Uh, in 2010, uh, we were trying. I was trying to come up with an idea where I could have a small buy-in and a big guarantee. And back then, it was a 335 buy-in for a million guarantee. Well, you can't just run one tournament where you can have that big of a guarantee for 300. dollars So, my idea was that if you played on 1A and you busted out, you could re-enter on 1B and you could not re-enter in the same week. So what it did was it brought people back to the casino every day, which that's what tournaments are supposed to be for. They're supposed to bring you to back to the property so you can eat there, so you can stay there, so you can play cash games. And that's what poker tournaments were for. And uh, we think we've lost that uh, you know, over, over time. And I think that you know, poker rooms have suffered uh, because of it, cash games have suffered because of it. Because you know, people instead of going down and playing cash games or playing satellites, they are actually staying in and playing in uh, the tournaments. They're just re-entering the tournaments over and over again. Now, is it fair for everybody that plays in those tournaments? Is it is it fair for the uh, small bankroll players uh, that these people are, are able to re-enter multiple times? Some people feel like it is. 
I'm not sure about that. What makes you not sure? I just don't think that, I think the deeper you are, the, the more money you have, uh, the more likely you have to go deep into the tournaments. And uh, I don't think that's fair for the amateur players. I'm all about satellite winners. I'm all about, you know, the little guy, the recreational player, the amateur player making the final tables and winning. I still think that's the key to uh, the poker tournaments. And uh, I'd like to see that remain. So the fact that people are doing multi-reentry, long registration times, uh, multi-flights, all of these things, day two entry, all of that, I think that hurts the, the amateur player. And I think that we're seeing some of that on Twitter now with people complaining about it. But I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen years ago. I wrote an article about it, put it on Poker News about op-ed. But, you know, the some of the properties and, and uh, places see the re-entry and the bigger registration fees as a way to make money. So I can't begrudge them that as well. You know, I, you know some of the events that have multi-re-entry are very successful. They're huge. You know, Semo Hard Rock being one of them, uh, Borgata being another one. Those are our biggest number of events. So it's got to be a balance. I'd love to see our tour, uh, you know, continue the way it is, where we have some no reentry, some single reentry, and some multi reentry. So I think that we have a good blend of that on the World Poker Tour, but I think some of the reentry has gone out of hand. When the casinos realize that they can scale something and make tons of money, um, it's kind of hard to flip that switch off once it once it goes right. That's true. But again, on the other side, are, are they losing money on the cash game stuff? Exactly. I think, I think commerce has seen that. And we're actually running a series uh, starting next week where we have no re-entries in the entire series. Wow. Uh, we're going to see how it goes. It's going to, it might fail, but uh, you know, we're going to see how it goes. And the people, the management at the commerce have, uh, you know, basically drawn the line in the sand said, we're going to try it, see if it works. I mean, so, you have to try, you have to experiment and test things and, and see what works and what doesn't work. I remember going to LAPC, and I be- believe it was 2006, and playing in, you, you know, looking at the rebuy structure. And Commerce's rebuy structure was different than the other places where you started with fewer chips. And so rebuys were incentivized. But then as it, the tournament progressed, you were actually deeper and had more play, which I always loved as a structure myself. I thought that was a, just such a smart way to do it than giving people like 10,000 big blinds mm-hmm. in a rebuy tournament and then taking the play out in the middle in the end. That never made any sense to me. Right. And I still do that today. You know, one of the things I do is I will start with lo- uh, smaller uh, time levels, like we'll start with 30 minutes, then we'll go to 40 minutes, then we'll go to hour at the final table, something like that to give more play deeper. And I am a true believer in that. I've always been a believer in that. I've always also been a believer that giving more and more chips every year is just it's killing the industry, basically. You know, that, that right there the, is the number one question that people ask when they call you on the phone. They say, how many chips do you start with? Not even looking at the structure, not knowing anything about the structure. They want to start with more chips. But what that does as an operator, it says that we've got to charge you more because now we have more staff at the beginning. We have more dealers at the beginning. We have more costs at the beginning. So therefore, giving you more chips is actually a negative for the player. It makes the tournament shallower at the end. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a real problem. And it's not getting any better. As you see, tournaments are giving more and more every year. Uh, you know, one tournament even gives a million in chips out there. And it's just not necessary. <laughs> I mean, I worked at the World Series of Poker. It was dollar for dollar. So the $10,000 event gave 10000 in chips. No one complained. No one had an argument with it. Nobody, and, and the structure was great. The structure was outstanding, but people don't realize that, you know, when we did that back then, you know, it didn't matter. 
the fact that we weren't giving a lot of chips didn't make the structure bad. And even when I did the million dollar uh, first reentry event, we gave 3,000 in chips, you know, and got 1,770 in, uh, players the last day, not entries, players, the last heat, you know, where are all those players now? I think they might be burnt out from all the reentry. <laughs> and it's so it's so, such a gimmicky thing right like start with a million chips like what do the blinds start out in a tournament where you start with a million chips like you're just like automatically at like three thousand six thousand i mean it's all relative right like you can you break it down it's all relative to big blinds but you talk to the players and they say this is great they're million in chips this is gonna be the best tournament ever they have no idea that it means nothing <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on the players that you talk to um, or the players giving feedback. But again, I guess if it is good for the more recreational players or if it makes them happy, then uh, – and it's effectively the same structure. Uh, maybe that's, that's the thought process. Like what's it's the harm? It's like a balance, but it's tough. You know? you know, when you start adding all these chips and, and things, you know, you, those add costs to the tournament. Yeah. And uh, that cost, as you know, always gets passed on to the players, which I hate. You know, we've kept – the uh, entry fees at Commerce, you know, steady for years and years. And we, we don't get any credit for it. You know, the, there's a lot of tournaments out there that are now raising rake to where it's unbeatable. And yet people still go play it because they give a lot of chips. It's, it's, it's <laughs> frustrating for a guy like me that really wants to make the industry better and make people understand that it's better, you know, by charging less and, and giving you guys more play late. But, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fight that I've, you know, fought for years and you know i lose a lot of times people think you know, they're well down the street they're giving you thirty thousand in chips yeah but the structure is a six-hour tournament yours is a 12-hour tournament how could that structure be better how could that be a better tournament? you know it's ridiculous yeah and that's the reason by the way why i was so excited or been so excited to have you on it and talk to you because you just always seem to me from afar as a guy that genuinely cares about the player genuinely cares about the game and keeping the game healthy and sustainable and doing just what's best for everybody. Whereas in a lot of places, it's just all about how much can we take from the player. It's all about just maximizing revenue from a specific tournament series, uh, which is obviously not very good. I mean, the Venetian right now, they have their, their whole thing. What are your thoughts on that tournament, by the way? Um, apparently it's going to miss the guarantee. It looks like it's might miss the guarantee, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, they have those promotional tournaments. Yeah. So as a player, you can choose to play it or not play it. But I think their whole intention was that we're going to miss this guarantee and we're doing it as a promotion, but they're not backing down from it. All the heat <laughs> that they took from it. I thought they were going to change it or do something. They're not, they're not backing down from it. It's kind of interesting that they haven't, um, but they're even promoting it today as, Hey, come on down. There's a possible overlay. So, you know, I think a lot of people are just sitting back and waiting to see how it goes. But I looked at the list of qualifiers. I see a few names in there that of people that said, Hey, I'm going to miss this. But now as a player, if you see it's going to miss this guarantee, are you supposed to go down there and play this event? Are you going to stand your guns and, and not go and play it? And we've seen this for years. I'm never playing at the Venetian. I'm not going to play there. You know, Sheldon Adelson's the worst. He doesn't allow online poker. He doesn't want online poker. I'm never going to play there. Oh yeah. Well, I see you guys there all summer. So, what are you saying? Well, we can't miss the tournaments. Yeah, it's uh, principles and yeah. ideals are one thing, and then you, you compare it to them having the opportunity to make some money and be involved in an overlay. Then all of a sudden, priorities start changing a little. For sure. 
it's pretty easy for me being in Atlanta. I can say, yeah, <laughs> I'm never going to the Venetian. <laughs> and that's, yeah. uh, that's an easy thing for me to say. So as players, as players that frequent these events, the staff, the people involved in the industry, what can we do to make your job easier? As players, I think you could just try and understand that there's two sides of it. It's obviously a business. Uh, there's a business side of it, which I'm on, but I'm also on the, uh, you know, a very big player advocate. Um, so I think knowing the rules is something I've always preached because I hate it when these guys are playing in these big money tournaments and they don't know the rules. You know, we created this TDA uh, with the help of the players, dealers, and staffs and tournament directors and the uh, poker managers from around the world to try and make it player friendly and consistent. Getting your little properties to use TDA rules, I think is helpful for you as a player. Cause if you want to become a, a real player, you have to step out and, you know, go to, go to the Las Vegas, go to, you know, the summer series that are here going on. And if everybody's not playing by the same rules, I think you're, you know, definitely behind the times and you, you, you know, you stand to risk, making a mistake that could cost you a lot of money. So I think knowing the rules has always been important to me. But again, understanding the business side of it, knowing that the reason that these tournaments were even created in the first place was for cash games and uh, learning learning that, you know, to, to play cash games. If you bust out of the tournament, there's a cash game downstairs uh, to, you know, try and get your money back. And that's used to be the way it used to go. Uh, but it's not that way anymore, so... I don't know. I, I, it's, it's tough for me to say what I would want players to do these days because there's so many things I'd like to see change. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that players, for the most part, you know, are the most, you know, not for the most part, they are the most important part of this industry. So as an operator, I always want to take their needs and questions and, and things and try and help them become better at their job, their profession, or their hobby. What would you like to see change? You mentioned that there are a lot of things. But what are some of the things? Um, I would say probably if we could focus as operators to try and, you know, cut back on some of the reentry, shorten some of the reg time, try and train your players, get them to understand that, you know, those costs are going to keep going up if they keep asking for those things, demanding more chips and all of those things. So, you know, the, the poker industry is not like it was before. You know, you used to have to go to the LA Poker Classic to play in a 1K event. You used to have to go to the World Series if you wanted to play in a bigger buy-in. Now there's a 1K tournament everywhere across the country all the time. So people aren't traveling as much. They're not doing it as much as they used to. Is poker, you know, gotten smaller? Probably not. It's probably bigger than ever right now. It's just so spread out that you don't see those people traveling to these events. So what I want players to do, I'd want players to give credit to those of us in the industry that show that we care about you. Versus just saying, no, they're giving more chips down the street, so I'm going to go there. Right? <laughs> yeah, support the right people, I think, right. is is what you're saying. Yeah. And yeah, that that's th- this is obvious, right? Um, it's just how, mm-hmm. how, how do we... Uh, this, so this is very embarrassing for me to admit. As a cash game player who doesn't play tons of tournaments... Um, I actually didn't know that tournaments were a mechanism <laughs> to feed into the cash games. Like yeah. I never even knew that that was like the purpose of them. Yeah, that's um, all it was for. Matter of fact, you know, the World Series was a convention of gamblers. So it was basically gamblers that would come in, play in the pits or play in the cash games, 
and then play the tournament. So, you know, all of those guys that had, you know, and this is why Doyle and, and Dewey Tomko and, uh, you know, Chip never cared about bracelets. They didn't give a shit about all that stuff. They cared about the cash games. They cared about all these tournament players coming in and playing in the cash games. So, you know, they would have many more bracelets and many more accolades than they even do today if they, you know, if they played more tournaments back in the days when the fields were smaller and things like that. So they didn't care about that stuff. They cared about the cash games. And, you know, that's what commerce cares about. They care about the cash games. They care about getting those tournament players into the cash games like it used to be. And that's what it's, that's what it's all about for us. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Tournaments were a mechanism for cash games. And at the end of this interview, if you get a chance, can you send me, just send me a list of the tournament series, the things that poker players ought to support. I'd love to share this with, with the community and very specifically say the rationale behind it, because, you know, knowledge is important. And a lot of times we just operate under complete ignorance and just, you know, do whatever seems appealing at the time. But, but if it would help, and I think it might, then I would, I would love to have that. Yeah, I mean, poker players these days are smarter than they've ever been. Uh, you know, they have choices in what they want to do. But I think, you know, it boils down to, I put up a poll years ago about, you know, what's most important to you? Location, price, structure, all of those things. And, you know, to, the, the most important thing was location, you know. The fact that if you do something in your, in your neighborhood that's semi-comparable to what, you know, they have at the big, big tournaments and big events, you're just going to stay home. So... I mean, that makes sense to me, you know, it's, there's costs involved with a touring and doing those things. So, you know, you've got to do what's best for you, but that's why with the world poker tour, we really try and you know, put things in locations all over the country, all over the world. So that people don't have to travel, you know, you know, so far. And I really believe that again, satellites are the key to all of this. So you have to have a good satellite program. If you're going to have a good event. For sure. And it's an incentive thing too, for people that play online, you have to incentivize them to come to Vegas or come to LA and spend, you know, 500 bucks on a plane ticket. And then, you know, 140 a night to stay at the crown Plaza, all these expenses add up. And if you can play comparable things online, well, you're probably just not going to go. Um, especially if you have a family, you know, if all these things are, are things to be taken into consideration too. What is up, you future star of poker, you? Coach Brad here, and I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're sitting there wondering to yourself, why? Why is Coach Brad promoting this PKC Poker app thing? Allow me a moment to explain my why. Battling in cash games has been my livelihood for the past 15 years. It's how I survive and put food on the table for my family which makes it imperative that I either test out or seek qualified opinions on all of the poker platforms on the market. One juicy find can mean the difference between a meh year and an amazing family vacation in Hawaii kind of year. With that said, I have tried almost all of the major poker apps on the market to date, and despite the hype about amazingly juicy games, have come away from the experience unsatisfied. I was just never able to find success against seemingly weak competition and, in one specific case, was getting outright destroyed by passive villains playing more than 50% of their hands. What on earth was going on, right? After many evenings sitting in the bathtub wondering if I had lost it, I finally dug into the data and learned something that shouldn't have been too surprising to you. These dudes were colluding and super using their pants off. So I swore off those free money, decentralized, devil apps and decided to go back to my more familiar streets of ignition. 
It was then that I was contacted by a good friend of mine who turned out to be the Vice President of Worldwide Operations at PKC. Him and I had a long, in-depth conversation about security, the ecosystem, and the future direction of PKC, and he managed to convince me to give it a shot. That shot turned into an incredible six months with an hourly rate that's about five times what it would have been playing on any other US platform. As it turns out, I didn't forget how to play. I just needed to be on a level playing field to return to my crushing ways. I have no doubt that you, my community, my audience is going to play online poker somewhere. And I want to be damn sure that you don't go through the pain and frustration I felt by messing around with any poker app besides PKC. This is why promoting PKC is a no-brainer for me. I love you, I love my community, and I want to put you in the best position to succeed at this game that we both love so much. So if you'd like to join me in the streets of PKC, simply head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod and get your invite code to play. You must have an invite code to play and you must be 21 years of age or older. One more time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your invite code. Best of luck, and now, on with the show. So, this is like, this is a, such a big question, but what would the perfect tournament series, in your mind, what would that look like to you? I mean, I think we are pretty close to it on the, with the LA Poker Classic. Not only is it 32 no-limit tournaments, it's 32 mixed games. And for me, I love playing mixed games. I think it's been said, it's even been said by, you know, Robbie Straczynski said the same thing. You're not really the best poker player in the world, in my opinion, unless you play all the games. If you can play, can't play all the games, how could you really be the best player? So the LA Poker Classic, we have a player of the series where we had $50,000. There's a big, you know, debate today of, you know, winning the World Series Poker Player of the Year. You know, what do they win? What do they win if they get that? You know, there's, there's no incentive you know monetarily but it is prestigious so you know i think you know the la poker classic adding that money uh, for the player of the series giving those players an incentive to come and play and learn all the games because now if you're in that player of the year you're going to have to play all the other games to do that so i always think playing all the games is very important i just think that you know that's a great series to try and do that you know a lot of the great players that uh, you know today started playing those hundred dollar tournaments and three hundred dollar tournaments at the LA Poker Classic. So, you know, the year before Ryan Reese won, I always say that he was in there every single day playing in those $300 events, and he loved it. You know, Daniel Negreanu just told me he he really wants to come play all those terms of the LA Poker Classic because he loves playing those games. So, you know, poker's about fun. For me, that's why I play. I play as recreation. You know, I'm not a professional player, so I want to play games that I want to play. I want to play mixed games. Well, I think the goal should be fun in general, right? Like people are very concerned about making money, which is obvious for obvious reasons, but also it's an experiential thing going to casinos, even sitting around with 10 people or nine people or, you know, eight, eight other people and engaging in conversation and making friends and creating these relationships. Like this is a valuable piece of the puzzle as well that often goes, goes underlooked. And I remember the LAPC, and it was standard fare back in the day to give money to the player of the series, right? I, I right. pretty specifically remember like a 10K, 10K bonus for being the player of the LAPC. Yeah, we used to do that. We used to give away seats. We used to give away all kinds of – we tried different things. But now it's just uh, you know, 30000 added to the overall player of the series. 
you know, $10,000 is added to the mixed game player of the series, $10,000 to the satellite player of the series. So we, we, we really try and, and mix it up. So everybody, you know, has to play or learn all those other games to play it and to win it. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's changed over time. You know, there's less incentive for casinos to be giving these things away because again, they're trying to get people into the cash games. But at the same time, I think that we really care about, you know, about doing something different with the LA Clover Classic. So that's a series that I really am fond of. It's kind of what I've put my passion into and what I'm, you know, really working hard on now to get out uh, for the public. That's genius, by the way, the satellite player of the series and not something that I would have ever thought about um, implementing. So, you know, you've obviously implemented things that have been successful. Can you tell me about something that has just been epic failure, something that you tried that was like, oh my God, this just, this was awful. (laughs) Well, I mean, to say it's an epic failure would probably be a little strong, but I really try a lot of different things. So I'm always out there trying different things. We just did a tournament in our last series called the abyss. Basically what it was, was the whole first day, the blinds didn't change. It was one in 200 for the entire day. So it was more of a cash game in the tournament. Now the players that played it loved it, but we missed the guarantee on it because people said, well, I'm not going to go play and waste my time playing a mat when I could just play the last day. I could still buy in on day two because the blinds are still the same, one in 200. So we missed the guarantee. So was it a failure? Yeah, probably. Um, but, you know, the people that played it said they loved it. But what I really still consider to be kind of a failure is reentry, you know, because not only people expanded upon it and made it, you know, a money-making uh, device. Uh, it's just really, I think, in the long run, it's really going to hurt the industry. So reentry is something that I'm not proud of putting out there, but I did. So. Well, it kind of took a, took on a life of its own. That's for sure. After it got introduced. And like I said, I, I don't play many tournaments, but then when I did get back into going to some series, especially after uh, Black Friday when I had no option, but traveling, I did notice the reentry tournaments, and there was just wildly, wildly different experience than than before. Where people complained about rebuy tournaments and being able to just rebuy whenever you busted, and reentries are just a whole other animal. Definitely, and you know, rebuy tournaments going back even before I was in the game, you know, were a way for the the properties to steal money from the players. So <laughs> you know, that was that was a whole nother set of problems but yeah re- people used to complain about rebuy tournaments because what happens was what was happening towards the end is that people were just stacking their tables basically you know one guy or two guys would just rebuy 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 and as soon as that rebuy period was over their table had all the chips now they're a huge favorite to win the tournament Daniel used to do the same thing and it was taking advantage of the system but it was um you know that's the way the system was so an occasional rebuy tournament we still do one during the la poker classic like i said uh, is okay, but you know that's a way to have. So now nobody was running rebuy turns anymore because they weren't collecting the entry fee again. That's the other reason why rebuy turns went away. Ah, yeah, I didn't know that actually. Yes, and, and I mean, if you're, you can't hate Daniel for just going all in and rebuying over and over and over and over again as a strategy because it's within the parameter of the rules, right? Like, Correct. even even the thing that drives me absolutely crazy, the stalling is within the parameter of the rules to a degree. And 
so until you change until the incentives get changed, nothing's going to change. Players well, are just going to keep, keep acting. Calling the clock's also in the parameter of the rules, and I sure. encourage anybody out there that has somebody that's stalling your table to do that. And I don't put up with it. You know, if I get called to the table multiple times, obviously it's a stress on me. It's a stress on my staff if they have to keep coming back to the table to doing that. So your time gets reduced from thirty seconds, you know, down to ten seconds pretty quickly if this is a, becomes an issue. So. You know, we kind of handle those things internally. And, you know, we've given, with the TDA, given the authority to reduce that amount of time and also for the floor people to call the clock themselves. So uh, it's something that we're trying to take away from uh, as a strategy in the game. It's so hard for as, as a player because you don't know, you don't know what people have. So you don't know how critical or close their decision is. And it's sometimes hard to, you don't want to call the clock on somebody unnecessarily. And I think that's where people, that, that's where people err on the side of caution. Because you don't want to come off, come off as, you know, a dick by just calling the clock when somebody's got a critical decision. And just it being in the hands of the players just creates this other thing. That, yeah, that it's has, all animosity situation where, you know, you call the clock on me, I'm going to call the clock on you. And, right. And all this stuff. So it becomes a problem. Um, but, you know, players have become stronger and people are less patient with that. And I think it's taken some of the fun out of the game when people are stalling. So I'm all for making the game quicker. Yeah. Let's give let's give the dealers like a yellow card and just play it on a play it on a habitual staller. They do it again. Give them a red card. I, I would like to see like a consultant come in and just be able to quickly analyze the situation. And a dude that gets red carded, they look and see, oh, he's tanking under the gun with Jack Deuce off. Okay, you you get an hour penalty or twenty five percent of your stack. Let's yeah. hurt this guy. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, th- there have to be incentives to stop stop people from doing it, right? That's the only way. That's the only way it happens. Jordan Christos would never be able to play poker anymore. That would not be good. Who? I like Jordan Christos. <laughs> he's, uh, he's the the world class dollar that uh, is always uh, causing issues in terms. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I like the kid. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. We talk all the time. So he's just a very deep thinker. He's a very deep. Yeah, he says he has a big uh, game tree. Uh, <laughs> others don't, so they don't understand. <laughs> he this this self professed smartest guy, smartest guy in the game. That's why he's going to take so long. Yep. So the process of getting a rule changed, especially when rules become uniform across the board. What does the process for implementing a rule change look like today? Well, for us, it's uh, with the Tournament Directors Association, it's pretty easy. Our summit is every other year. It's grown from uh, 25 card room managers from around the United States in 2001 to over 200 people came this year from all over the world, players, dealers, floormen, tournament directors, card room managers, operators have come in and, you know, basically – there's a lot of rumbling, and I answer everybody's question on Twitter at Savage Poker. I'm always in there helping people learn the rules and things like that. So sometimes a big rule will come up and the big discussion will come up, and you know there's no real perfect answer for it. It's not a written rule. So what will happen is, is I will take that notes down, or somebody will, will send me a note and say, hey, let's discuss this at the TDA Summit. We will bring up the rule for discussion. Uh, we have... Half the room wants one way, half the room wants the other way. We end up, you know, kind of like a jury. We push it back and forth. If we can't come to agreement, it's not going to be a TDA rule. If we can get it up to like 80% of people that will 
are on one side, we'll try and push the other 20% to say, hey, let's try and make this a rule. If it is a rule, at least it's better for everybody involved because it's a standard thing. So now the players aren't affected when they go from casino to casino and the rule is different from place to place. So if we can get everybody doing the same thing, that's better to back away from your your theory of, of how you like the rule to be, to have it the same as everybody else. Now you even have backup. If that rule comes up and you get challenged on it, you can say, no, we voted on this at the TDA summit. It's a TDA rule. And now that's how we do it. So basically it's a majority rules. And then we try and get everybody to agree to it. If we can't get something that uh, is agreeable by everybody, we generally don't make it a rule. And how do you get it into the summit? Is there, do you need a media pass? Like, we also have media that's there as well, but no, you know, if you have a specific uh, thing that you'd like to see change, obviously we'd love to have you come out and be a, a, in attendance at the summit, but also you could, you know, just uh, send it to me and I will bring it up to the group itself. So, you know, you can bring it, send it to me or anybody else that's on the, the uh, TDA board. Right now we have Johnny Grooms from MGM National Harbor and Lloyd Fontillas from the uh, Asian Poker Tour Jack Gaffel from the World Series of Poker. We have uh, also uh, Tab Duchateau from uh, the Borgata and Neil Johnson, who was with the World Poker Tour. I mean, the, the uh, excuse me, he was with the EPT and Poker Stars. And then the guy that kind of puts it all together is Mike Bishop, who's the guy from Chicago that you know, has joined the board and done great things for us. So that's basically how you do it. You send us something to ask the TDA at uh, pokertda.com or ask the board at pokertda.com and we'll look at it and you know if it's something we feel is valid or is a big problem for the game we will bring it up and we've basically covered almost everything at this point because we've done so many summits but uh you know there's always something new every couple of years that comes up johnny grooms that brings me back he used to run the tournament series i think it was the gulf coast open yes uh, at the beau rivage um, yeah yeah i, I like the, the johnny grooms crew Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, I actually am finding myself very ignorant uh, right now because I did not know about the Attorney Director Summit uh, and just the process for getting a rule change through. I know that there is a very controversial one for a while, a no cussing. No cussing, no F-bombs. Were you involved with that? Yes, I was. So yeah. it was the F-bomb rule. Yeah, the F-bomb rule. Basically started in L.A., so that's why you would know <laughs> the tournament director up there uh, – her name was Sherry. Yeah. Uh, and she didn't like people swearing at the table. If you said the F word, you were instantly off the table for uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of traveled around the LA rooms and, you know, came to be a rule. This is what, a rule. So basically, you could say whatever else you wanted, but you couldn't <laughs> say the F word. I mean, how stupid is that? It we're was the adults. dumbest rule. Oh. Yeah. We're all adults. And so I said, well, I'm never going to have that at the TDA. So we had a discussion about it. I said, I'm never going to go with that. So you guys decide if you want to make that a rule for yourself, but I'm telling you it's an issue because you can say all the other words, you know, you can say the C word if you want, and that's not a penalty, but you can't say the F word. Come on. That's a joke. So we basically got that thrown out. And now, you know, you can say pretty much whatever you want, as long as you don't direct it towards a dealer, a staff member or another player. Yeah. Like, the context matters, right? Like you, you get a bad beat on the river. You're like, ah, fuck. Like yeah. that's very different than saying, fuck you. Like, you know, it's a just different, different context. And plus it's very subjective too, for the dealers. I, I know that there were, I definitely 
said the dropped an f-bomb and never got penalized and, and it's just like if the dealer likes you or they're in a good mood then you're going to be scot-free but if they don't like you you're done or they're in a bad mood you know yeah there's a famous one of those where this rule was floating around and it was actually had made its way to vegas and orleans used to have this big tournament where they would have a hundred dollar buy-in and hundred thousand guarantee it was the biggest thing ever it was like nobody had ever seen anything like it because back then there was no re-entry and you needed a thousand players and it was a, a one day tournament and things like that. So uh, John Benetti, uh, who's passed away now, but said the F word on a break and the floor person just happened to be walking by and gave him a penalty in the tournament for saying it on a break. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. It was the most ridiculous thing ever. And only because they didn't like John Bennett. Yeah, of course. Like yeah. that, it's all, it becomes like a personal issue, just impossible to police. That was, that was one of the sillier things that I think that I, I've, experienced in my poker career the f-bomb rule right i'm very happy that it, it does not exist anymore. <laughs> definitely um, doesn't exist anymore when you think of, of the word joy in your poker career what's the first memory that comes to mind well probably meeting my wife at binion's horseshoe <laughs> it's a safe uh, answer <laughs> yeah i met her there in uh 2001 uh and uh ended up actually proposing to her at the 2004 uh world series poker final table uh, there's a video of that online as well. It's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, that's probably the number one thing. But, you know, being able to uh, provide for my family is probably up there. But also helping people, helping new players into the game and, and trying to make it enjoyable is a big part of uh, the joy that I receive. I love being able to answer questions for people that somebody that doesn't know the answer. Uh, it's kind of turned into a bad thing where, People will have a bet. I bet you this is a rule. No, I bet you this is a rule. Okay, we'll, we'll text Matt Savage and find out. That's the kind of thing. I wish I had 10% of all those side bets. On yeah, just, just take the VIG. Yeah, so no, but uh, yeah, that's, that's a big part of my joy is being able to help people, being able to see the people that have worked for me over the years, advance in the, in the industry and do great things. You know, uh, I've worked with so many great tournament directors and, and brought out a lot of people that are, now doing other things, managing poker rooms and, and uh, being you know, tournament directors and some of the biggest jobs in the world. That brings me a lot of joy as well. So, you know, I guess basically, you know, my, my path, my career and touching so many people's uh, journey in poker uh, is a big part of the joy that I receive. I believe that. And it's all about positive experiences for people. And you've definitely provided more than your fair share throughout your career. When you, when you think of pain, in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Probably uh, the amount of time it's taken from my family. That's, that's the biggest probably regret that I have is that, you know, even though uh, I really a big family, man, I love being with my family and, and traveling with them and, and be having the opportunity to do that, you know, not being at home for, you know, some key things. And my son's life is, is probably the biggest amount of pain and, being here, even when I'm here, you know, I'm always busy answering emails and social media and things like that. So to me, that's probably my biggest pain. It's going to be my biggest regret. I know that is not being a part of some of those special things that, uh, you know, and missing some of those things that uh, of my son growing up, my daughter growing up, who's now moved out now. But uh, that's probably the biggest amount of pain that I will see now and probably in the future. And just from the, from the, poker player's perspective i'm very grateful for the time and energy that you've put into making 
you know, improving the game and making it such a great experience. And it actually, it hurts me that it's cost you so much time with your family and that you've been very selfless with your time. And hopefully, uh, you know, stop texting Matt so much. Let's let's give the man <laughs> let's give the man some time. Well, uh, I mean, this <laughs> last week I was in the hospital, and you know, just knowing, you know, my wife took away my phone for a few hours, and even while I'm laying there in bed, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to have so many notifications when I get my phone. And of course, she made the, the you know the the choice to post something about me being in the hospital, and just getting. This huge outpouring, I mean, of people and people saying, get well and, you know, hope you're okay and all of that. You know, it, it's satisfying. It makes you feel like you've made a difference in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, that's, that goes hand in hand with some of the, the time I've been away from my family. But, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate in my career, too, to be able to travel with my family and have them come with me. I'm the only person I know that has written in their contract that when I fly somewhere, my wife gets a ticket too. So she gets to fly with me wherever she goes. She's kind of like the poker mom, you know? She <laughs> she knows so many people through this industry as well. So we've seen and met and, 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 and been a part of so many people's lives and met so many great people through poker that, you know, that that's the positive side of it. But, uh, you know, there's definitely a downside of that too. And, I mean, there's just a class act, right? Like written into your contract, your wife travels with you. <laughs> Um, making that a priority. And it's probably something that, again, lots of poker players don't think about the times that even dealers that travel and deal these events, how much time they have to spend away from their family in just, you know, foreign environments for these poker tournaments so that you can show up and a thousand people can play and you can get dealt cards. People give up a lot for that. They do. And it's, it's tough. You know, if you are a poker player and you're spouse doesn't play poker or understand it or if you're working in this industry and they don't travel with you and and you know work in the industry as well it's tough you know you you see it there's not that many successful poker players out there that have you know successful marriages and lives and families because it's such a drain and such a tough tough thing you know i have the ultimate respect for those people that can balance all of that and uh, make both sides of their both career and family life successful so there are a lot of people out there that do that and, and balance that correctly, but I know it's very tough. It is tough. And, and I'll tell you, that's when I stopped playing live poker was when I met the woman that would become my wife. And all of a sudden living at the Commerce Casino, thousands of miles away, living out of a suitcase didn't seem so appealing anymore when I had options to play online. And then basically, you know, Things got serious very quickly, and then we got married, and still almost never travel for poker. You probably saw David Baker. You probably saw David Baker when you're out of comics, but you know he's lived there too. He's lived there now. He's a poker player. He plays poker, and his wife Nicole, uh, you know, has just done so much uh, to back him and, and be a part of that and and understanding. And he just won the LA Poker Classic, and you could just see the relief come off him as making this big score. And his wife in the audience, you know, at the new esports arena, they could see the relief. And he was very emotional because he knows, you know, the toll that it's taken on their relationship and how much she's put up with. And he credited everything he did to that point to her. And I think, you know, you see stuff like that and, you know, you make it makes you feel really good 
about uh, some of the choices and things that you've done in your life and changes you've made yourself, you know, to, to be a part of the family, you know, it's tough. It's not easy. So I understand it being on the other side. People a lot of times say, well, you're not a player. You don't understand. I understand. I do. I really do. I mean, this is like in your job description, right? Empathizing for the players, um, sure. thinking like a player. No one's heard more bad beats than me. No <laughs> All that in, infinite. I've heard way more bad beats than anybody on earth. That's a fact. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, I'm not going to add to that. I'm not a, uh, not a bad beat teller. Don't really like hearing the bad beats. I can't even, what, what's the over under you think? <laughs> oh man, it's tough. that's tough. I mean, I've worked <laughs> so many tournaments in here, <laughs> 10 a day, 20 a day. And I always listen to them. I may not be totally listening, but <laughs> uh, I'll always say, oh, that's a tough one, man. That's the that, oh, I don't know. <laughs> wow. It's, it's actually, when people say a million, they don't really mean it, but I've probably heard a million. <laughs> a million bad beat stories. Yeah. That's a lot of bad beats. Yeah. That's a lot of time spent listening to bad <laughs> beat stories. Holy cow. Yeah. So this is a, a question that I'm tinkering with, but um, in poker lore, what's your favorite story that you've heard over the years? Well, I didn't know Stu Unger, but I know people like Stu Unger. I know, you know, the stories that Mike Sexton tells, you know, he's a good friend, dear friend of mine um, about Stu Unger. I wish I would have known Stu. I actually feel like, you know, I was a big part of a lot of people's lives early in my career. You know, it had been cool to be able to make a difference in someone's life. You know, he was lost and people say that, but I think I've helped a lot of people. The lore of, of Stu Unger to me, I think is one that I just never really understood or was a part of. So I don't know um, him and Chip Reese. I got to meet him towards the end of his life and the stories he would tell about Doyle and, and oh, one. what's a, what's a Chip Reese uh, <laughs> and Doyle story? Well, Chip Reese says that Doyle Brunson's a real asshole. He used to say he's a real asshole. Because you guys, when your TVs came in and covered him, and uh, and he was always this nice, jolly guy, Mr. Poker, never never nothing but a smile, signing autographs and all that stuff. But when the cam- before the cameras were there, he was a real asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what Chip said. But, you know, they were best friends, so he could say that. Yeah. Probably. Out of, out of line for me to say that about somebody. But, uh, no, I love Doyle. And I, I only saw that side of Doyle, so I I never saw the stuff before that. But He's probably just yeah. messing with him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> believe me, he was. He's He was probably pretty good at bluffing, though. I, he's oh, probably, yeah. Right. Doyle's, <laughs> probably okay. Doyle's an amazing person. I mean, Doyle, I mean, look at him. He's still playing poker at his age. And seriously, it's crazy how how amazing that man is and the journey he's gone through. You know, from Texas to here, it's like crazy that uh, he's still playing the game and still loves it and can't live without it. So it's uh, it's awesome. He's kind of a testament to, to all the young poker players out there. If, if they can do what Doyle did or come close to it, a tenth of what he did, they probably had a successful poker career. And Doyle, I don't get starstruck by people. Like it's uh, just not something that I really do. But I remember the first time that I saw Doyle, it was in – Tunica, Mississippi at the gold strike and just couldn't even, it was like, just look at him and then can't make eye contact. Like I just, <laughs> you know, it's like me, it was like meeting my hero, like just reading super system. Cause super system was pretty much it for 
as far as I'm concerned, like high quality literature back in 2004, No Limit Hold'em specifically. And yeah, just hearing his stories, knowing, you know, that he played professional basketball and his stories on the road. Like these are the things that resonate with me. He even released, there is a book of short stories. I don't I can't even remember the name of it, but I enjoyed that book more than I enjoyed super system. Just hearing about, you know, him and slim and sailor Roberts on the road. Yeah. It's amazing. These guys, they really were legends. They were characters and they, you know, Doyle's going to live forever. I don't know. (laughs) If we're lucky, if we're lucky, he will. Yeah. People that want to break into the poker industry, what's some wisdom that, that you would give them? I mean, I started in 1991. I, I, and I did all the jobs and, uh, you know, I sold chips. I did it for a couple of years. Then I became a dealer. And then I developed carpal tunnel. I worked on the floor, lead floor, assistant tournament director, tournament director. I think you got to do all the jobs. I really do. I think it's, if you understand what people are, what it's like to be a player, what it's like to be um, a porter. I cleaned ashtrays when I was young, you know, in the, in the bowling alley. I know what it's like. So I treat and have treated people on my way up through this industry the same as I wanted to be treated when I was in those jobs. So to me, that's the most important thing. And I take this into the playing the players as well. I treat the one, two players the same way as I treat the hundred K high rollers. I treat them exactly the same. I give them the same fair rulings. I give them the same, you know, tough rulings. I give them, I give everybody the same treatment. Um, I like to say that I treat everybody as if they just walked up and handed me a $20 tip and it doesn't happen anymore. But back in the day it used to, but if you treat everybody the same as if they were, you know, a generous person to you and, and friendly to you, you're going to be a lot better off and you're going to go a lot further in this industry. But learning everything, learning every job, and understanding what it takes to do those jobs is a big deal. I still bust tables every tournament I run. So I understand what's them. I, uh, I try and be friendly with everybody, and I think that's uh, taken me furthest in my career. And it's hard to have expectations of people if you don't understand their responsibilities yourself. That's, that's why you know when you're doing like digital marketing or online entrepreneurship – Whatever it is, you need a cursory understanding of the things that that you're paying for, the things that are going on. Because if you don't, you have unrealistic expectations. You don't know how to dole out responsibilities. It's just a good lesson in life to learn all the all the different um, functions of whatever you're you're trying to do. Yeah, I truly feel like I'm the best in the world at what I do, and some call that arrogance. I call it confidence. But I don't think I'm a better person than the people that are, you know, picking up garbage. I don't feel like I'm better than that person. I feel like I'm better at my job than anybody else, but I don't feel like I'm a better person. I have my faults every day. My wife points them out all the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like I'm a better person, but, you know, I am confident in what I do. I love what I do. I love the, the position that I've earned and, and come through to my, in my career. But, you know, again, I think that respect for somebody as a person, it's super important. It takes you very, very far. And I don't think it's arrogant to say that you know, you're the best. I, I believe that you are the best at what you do as well. And I also know that there's humility there for somebody that wants to experiment, that wants to try different things and learn and test and grow. And that's part of what makes greatness, in my opinion. The, 
never resting on the way that things are experimenting and just always trying to make poker a better experience for everybody that plays the game. Yeah. And I admit it when I'm wrong too. I mean, I, I obviously have made mistakes, you know, misguarantees things that happen in my career that I'm not proud of, but uh, you know, it's, that's all part of learning and building and becoming a better person too. You know, you mentioned making it tough rulings, any, any like major tough ruling, what's the toughest ruling you've had to make? Well, I mean, I feel like my favorite ruling or the, the toughest ruling I made at the time was, I've told this story before, was back in the, the 2002 World Series of Poker. Uh, there's a guy that uh, named Russell Rosenblum. And, uh, you know, I was new. I was, I was green. I was the first time I'd worked the World Series of Poker, but I came in with confidence and uh, knew the rules, which was good. Um, but I'd come to the table and he had made a bet and uh julian gardner the guy that came in second in the world series that year moved all in i believe it was about ten thousand more and he said all in and the way he said it russell leaped from the table ran from the table to the other side of the room <laughs> his man was still in front of him and i walked out and said what are you doing what's going on i fold i fold i fold he said so i make my way back to the table to fold his hand and as i'm doing that he's catching up to me behind me and realizes that it's only 10,000 more. And so I said, no, Russell, you said you fold and the action's on you. You folded your cards. I folded his hand and uh, he would have busted Julian. He had two jacks. Julian had two fives. He would have busted him out of the tournament at that point. Julian wouldn't have gone on to win 1.1 million. And luckily for Russell, this was about with 25, 28 left, something like that he ended up making the final table. So, you know, that whole thing could have changed the course of history, would have changed the course of history for Julian Gardner, probably goes broke in that hand. But at the same time, you know, it, it was a correct ruling. So I, I still think that's my favorite ruling, my best ruling. Uh, Jesse May wrote an article about it, uh, uh, about that one ruling, and kind of gave me the confidence in my career to do what I've done because, you know, this article that Jesse wrote – it's, it's interesting. It, it was a, it was an interesting story, but uh, you know, Jesse saw that in me back then. And I always give him credit for uh, helping me in my career. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Probably not going to find that in the TDA um, <laughs> rule book, dude running, sprinting away from the table <laughs> yes. uh, with his live cards. Like, correct. Oh, I, I can just only imagine the amount of just odd things that you've seen running poker tournaments like you see it occasionally on the tv people throwing a shoe on a table and just like <laughs> all kinds of absurd behavior from human beings in poker i've been lucky in my career not to have a lot of those things happen i i was proud of the fact that i had not thrown anybody out of the poker room and i mean basically for the first 15 years i was a tournament director 10 years i was a tournament director until they actually had a physical fight at the table i couldn't do anything about it they had to go but yeah, I was, I was lucky, you know, I'm able to diffuse situations and so they don't escalate and become a big problem and, you know, haven't been able to or come across anybody that's actually, you know, gotten in so much trouble that they needed to be excluded or removed from the poker room. But, you know, it happens. I I've, haven't seen fights, but I know that they happen. I, I People have been escorted out of the Commerce Casino for fights. I believe when I was living there, 
they these two guys got into a fight one time and somebody grabbed like one of the circular trays that the cocktail waitresses has and like chunked it like <laughs> overhand like a, a disc at another guy yeah. just uh pretty absurd in our emails you mentioned the poker hall of fame and i know that you've been up for the poker hall of fame i believe it's four times now yeah i was uh, nom- been nominated five times four years in a row um which is i think the first person who's ever been nominated four years in a row and this is uh you know something that is important to me and i care about i want to leave a legacy for my family and 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 you know what i've done in this industry but i've not yet been nominated so it's 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 okay i'm starting to deal with it this last year they took it out of the hands of the public because the public was the one that was always nominating but you know now it's been taken over by the world series of poker this is so counterintuitive to me that they did not yeah so they didn't nominate me and uh yeah it was kind of a slap you know i i understand that that was probably part of the motive a little bit which is fine and you know the fact that it's run by the world series poker it shouldn't matter this much to me uh, the World Poker Tour, like I said, is a great family, and you know they've they've put me up for what we call the WPT honors, and I think that's a big deal to me. I'm excited about uh, being a part of that, and uh, like Adam Pliska, you know, has really uh, been a mentor to me and and somebody that I look up to. So that, in the end, should be the most important thing. You know, having my wife happy with me and my my family happy with me should be way more important, and and I'm starting to get the hang of that. You know, those people that were nominating me for the hall of fame. They weren't sitting in the hospital with me a couple of days ago. My wife was. So that's, what's important. That's what, uh, that's what I should care about. hundred percent. And I didn't actually, again, I didn't know that the WSOP was in charge of the poker hall of fame. Like I, I didn't know that that, that was a thing. Um, yeah, it was kind of independent, but now it's kind of fallen under their umbrella. So they're in charge of it. And so who knows if I'll ever get nominated again. I don't, I don't know. So well, we'll see. You're a hall of famer to me, sir. You, but that's I guess I'm part of <laughs> yeah. That's what matters. I guess I'm part of the public, so my vote doesn't matter to the WSOP at all. There are those Daniel feels like it should be only players. He feels like people that have made a difference in the industry shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I totally disagree with him. I'm oh, I disagree. Of, I'm friends with Daniel, and, and you know we go back and forth on it. But you know he has influence o- over there, so I'm sure what some of the stuff that he says means that there was ten people nominated. They're all they were all players. So, you know, maybe that's the way they're going now and maybe that'll never change. But, uh, you know, it's tough when you hear people that you respect like Daniel Philhelmuth and stuff like that that say, Oh, you know, later on you'll get in no problem. You're a hall of famer, but for now it should be just players. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things I've done so many things for Phil in his career and, and helped him in every way that I can and, and shown respect for a lot of different people, a lot of players that, you know, and, and try to diffuse situations for in their career that, you know, have made them look bad. You know, Phil Helmuth's done a lot of things in his career that, you know, aren't positive for the industry overall. But himself, he's a huge positive for the industry. So, you know, I love the guy. I think that, uh, you know, without characters like him, we don't have what we have today. So uh, it's just one of those things. It's kind of it kind of hurts a little bit to hear those people say that. For what it's worth, I absolutely disagree because there's innovations. There's people that grow the game, um, people that love the game and, and dedicate their lives to the game that just aren't players. Why penalize them if they've they've given as much as anybody else? You know, um, their blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, I've definitely been uh, worked. I've worked as many hours as a poker pro poker player for the last twenty years. That's for sure. Probably more than most. 
And uh, I always like to say I've been at more final tables than any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this about Phil Helmuth, though. There's nobody that played the poker boom better than Phil Helmuth. Oh, um, sure. That dude played the poker boom com- total maximum um, just made his whole entire life. I mean, as far as like publicity and all of these things, and there's a sentiment going on right now that, that is also like, fuck the pros. I think that I've heard this saying bandied about a lot and how do we eliminate the pros? How do we hurt the pros? And I do want to say this, like without somebody like Phil Helmuth, there aren't as many people that play in the WSOP. There's not as many recreational players without Daniel Negreanu, without the pros that have grown the game themselves. There's not uh, the, the the whole thing is smaller for everybody. The whole industry. And I mean, it comes. There's nothing more comes more light to that than like a guy like Chris Moneymaker, who did make the Hall of Fame this year. But there are so many people that say he's not a player. He doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. Of course he does. Of course he belongs in the Hall of Fame. So many people, you know, he's done a lot. He's not. Yeah, he's in for not being a player, in my opinion. He's in for being, you know, a who he is and what he's done and, and the things that he's done for poker. And, you know, that there's a lot to that. He's poured his life into building the game, and it clearly would not be as big without him, without Daniel, without Mike Sexton, Linda Johnson. Those people are the people that I feel like have done so much for the game that, I mean, without them, it's not as big as it is today. And I like to feel like, some of the changes I've made, you know, are the same. I think that we've, you know, we've as a group really tried to promote the game, make it better for amateurs, make it better for recreational players and the pros all benefit from that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying with what people are saying about the pros, but I like to do it from the ground ground floor and I like to try and bring more people into the game, which helps benefit. the pros. So, uh, you know, to me, again, I have a ton of respect for the pro players and I understand that, but they should also, understand that you know us trying to have more satellite winners and have more uh people come into the game is also benefiting them yes you, you just have to take a zoomed out perspective and, and see the whole picture instead of just your one sole perspective that you have as a pro and i heard you talking to uh lasky last your last podcast about how pros need to understand that they are a part of making this a better experience for the amateur players because that is vital. I mean, if you are going to have the, the hoodie and the sunglasses and the headphones, you're not making it a great experience for those players coming into the game. No, so if you want to make that. more money. You got to be able to play that side of the game too. Yeah. Like, and this is like, it's such a, in cash games, especially like the high stakes cash games, it's everybody kind of gets that that's part of the gig, right? Like right. that, experience people having a positive experience whether they win lose or draw is just massive for the sustained health of poker um and the games that they play in like nobody wants to lose a massive pot and be called a fish or be called a whale or get berated um nobody wants to sit there and battle against eight dudes in hoodies and sunglasses that never speak or have conversation and, and like that, there that's is a- one person that, that they like getting berated by philomena I've seen it. Time <laughs> and time. People love to try and egg him on and get him on. So people love it. And they talk about, Oh, he's so bad for the game when he does this. People love it. Oh, he's, he's right. You're right. He, he's a special case. He's, he's like, special. he's like the guy that you want to go off on you. It's like a, a 
you know, a badge of honor sure. when, when Phil goes off on you. But like in the cash games, there's no cameras. Half the job is entertainment and creating relationships. And I can't even tell you how much value I've gotten from just speaking to people who are very, very successful. Like somebody that's not good at poker but has the, the disposable income to play high stakes, almost always ultra smart, have um, can can just in conversation give you so much value just talking to them life wisdom business advice and, and they're all very very generous with their time and energy as well investing yeah a lot of these players need to invest make a big score invest buy a house buy you know invest your money do the right things and you know, a lot of people have done that and, and that's good I mean I'm happy about that yeah I'm always you- glad to see Bitcoin go up like it did yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday was a good day for Bitcoin. I went, yes, to, I went to sleep and I woke up and I was like, holy shit, what <laughs> happened? It's been a bad few months, but last night was really good. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, when your career is over, which is hopefully a very distant future, what kind of legacy would you like to have in, in the poker world? Uh, definitely one that person has made a difference. Um, I... You know, with the TDA, I think that it's that's going to be my legacy, the Tournament Director Association, um, and the amount of people that are kind of in my tree. You know, like if you look at the amount of people that are around the world now that I've worked with and have worked for me over the years, it's a great group of people that understand uh, that the players are first and most important, and that it's trying to grow the game. Uh, I, th- I, my legacy would, would, would hopefully be one of an ambassador as well as a tournament director, as well as executive tour director, but somebody that cared about the relationships and making the game better for everybody involved and, you know, making it enjoyable. I, all of those things are important to me. It's not a job to me. It hasn't been a job to me. It's been more of a passion and it's been, not even a passion. It's weird to say, but it's not even been a passion about poker. It's been a passion about relationships. And so I think that those things are what is important to me uh, is to try and leave a mark on the game that when I came into it, you know, for the TDA in 2001, until I get out of it, I made the game better. And I think I can already say that. And I, I hope that continues. And uh, hopefully that's the legacy I leave. Well, whether or not you make it to the Poker Hall of Fame, you, you've made a difference. You, you've improved the game. And please, for everybody's sake, keep experimenting, keep learning, keep innovating to make poker a fun experience. Because when poker is a fun experience for people, they tell other people about poker. They talk about it. Poker grows organically. And when poker is a miserable, crappy experience, they tell people that is miserable and crappy and the, the, the industry as a whole just doesn't grow. Right. That's for sure. Matt, it's been just an, an amazing honor having you on the show. I'm very grateful for your time, especially I know you've been sick this week. Thank you so, so much. Um, have a great day. Sp- spend the day with your family. Awesome talking to you and having this interaction. Thank you so much. Anytime. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to help promote your, uh, your, your podcast and, Get it out there. I've uh, enjoyed listening to the ones I've listened to so far. So thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new poker platform where the games are safe and secure and the action's amazing, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.